0: Thank you choir for that, get you, um, wet your whistle just a little bit and get you ready. It also serves as a reminder to me that we need to put new wicks in these candles, and so somebody remind me of that after the service, I've got them on my desk, just remind me of that, alright, thank, thank you, I appreciate that. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open to Isaiah chapter 11, uh, we'll be moving forward this week instead of backwards as we did last week. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11 and we'll we'll be beginning in verse 1 Uh, and as with our previous two passages I suspect that this one is is one that's going to be at least on the word level uh, probably from a New Testament perspective one that is familiar to us Uh, But then I think, again, as we consider it within its own context, maybe it will be less familiar to us, and I could be wrong about that. Uh, But with that in mind, my goal again today is to try to marry those two perspectives, that uh, of Israel and what this meant to them, uh, and also what a passage like this means for our present day application. So uh, let's read this together, Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1 and going all the way through verse 10. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to this portion of your holy and inerrant word, uh, Lord, we, we admit that we are weak and feeble, uh, that we need your guidance, uh, that if these words are to penetrate to our hearts in any meaningful way, uh, that you are going to have to do that. And so, Lord, we, we ask humbly uh, that you would be pleased to, to, to meet with your people and to apply these words to our hearts so that we might leave changed, that we might be transformed by the truth that we read here. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Uh, Well, if you were with us last week, uh, you were probably wondering, as I say that, why I didn't choose this hymn and this title for the message that we considered then. But you'll recall that I said last week that God had kind of blown up my plans, and so here are the results of that. Uh, But you'll remember in Isaiah chapter 7, God promised that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and that his name would be Emmanuel. And it was that Emmanuel, that idea of God with us, and the extent to which God truly is with us, uh, that we considered last week. Uh, God is Emmanuel with us in our rebellion. Uh, He is with us to give us hope and assurance. He is with us in judgment. And in Christ, he is with us to take our judgment. Uh, And then finally, uh, he is with us in redemption. And all of this, of course, finds its fulfillment and is confirmed in the person of the incarnate son uh, who took on flesh, who, who came near so that through his work of redemption, He might be our God and we might be truly his people, his people for all of eternity. He is Emmanuel. And so certainly uh, this hymn and this title would have been appropriate for last week. But as you can see in God's good providence, I have chosen to put this with our sermon today. And I hope that as we move through this, you will see that I have done so with good reason. Uh, What we're going to try to to unpack today, what we're going to try to see here in Isaiah 11, is that the Emmanuel that we considered last week, the the child that was to be born that we considered the the week before that, he is described here as the rod of Jesse. And as such, he is the long-awaited promised king who, who would fulfill all the righteous requirements of God's law, and who would bring eternal hope to his people. So what is before us today is kingship. What is before us is this idea of rule. Who will rule over God's people? Now before we, we get to that, before we start unpacking it, let me just try once again to sort of set the stage of the historical context. Because again, as it did last week, I think it will help us as we move forward. You know that one of the themes of the Old Testament, really of redemption as a whole, is this whole idea of kingship. You know, as you'll recall, after the period of the judges, the people had rightly recognized that they needed someone to rule over them. know they had had these judges and it had worked out that God had redeemed them over and over and over again but as the king as the judges would would kind of fade out they would fall right back into sin and so they recognized rightly that they needed a king the problem was is that they requested a king like a king from all the other nations they didn't recognize that the king they had truly was God himself that they needed a king who was like their God who was their god Uh, and so they they request a king like all the other nations have and god gives them that he gives them saul and of course saul fails in uh, to meet the requirements that god gives and frankly saul begins what it can only be described as a devastatingly terrible group of leadership okay Uh, There's good ones to be sure. David is in that mix. Hezekiah is in the mix. Josiah. There's some good kings along the way. But as a whole, and even those good ones, they show themselves unable to fulfill all the righteous requirements of God's law. But they fail to enforce his judgments as he uh, has called them to do. He fails to be the kings. They they fail to be the kings that that he has sought after. And so, as we turn to Isaiah here, some 400 years later, some 400 years after that, that original request, the, the question remains, who will lead? Who, who will be king over Israel? Who, who will do what God requires? Now, to their credit... Uh, The people recognize the need for this. Really, all the way into the New Testament, you'll recall that as we've gone through Luke, we've said over and over and over again that the people were looking for a king. Now, they were looking for the wrong kind of king, but all along the Jewish people understand that their need is for someone to come and to rule them. They need a king. Here in Isaiah, you'll recall that the two kings that are active at this point are Pekah in the north, and he has made his alliance with Syria so that he might be able to attack Judah and then go and attack Assyria, who was this threat that's looming. And then Ahaz, who is the king in the south in Judah, he has made his alliance with Assyria to try to attack the kingdoms in the north. And so again, the point of all of that is nobody's following God. None of the people who are in position of leadership are looking to God to lead them. They are all trying to lead in their own power, in their own strength. And so if you turn back just probably a couple pages in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 9 and beginning in verse 8, you'll see what is going to be the coming result of all of this. And I was going to read through every bit of this, but I won't do that. I'll just try to give you a sampling of it. But beginning in verse 8, it says, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob. Now this is as a result of the failure of the kings directly and then the failure of the people under the kings. It says, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down. But we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. If you flip over or look over at chapter 10 at the beginning of that, it says, Woe to those who decree iniquities iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners, or fall among the slain. For all of this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Now again, I read that just to remind you that God's judgment is being declared. And all of this is as a result of poor leadership. Ultimately, that's where the buck stopped. It stopped at the king, right? He was the one who was to lead the people in the way that they should go, He was the one who was to to, uh, encourage right worship of God. He was the one who who was, in, in many ways, to represent God to the people. And the kings had failed. So the people had failed, and now the nation as a whole had come under God's judgment. And so all of this sets the stage, and again, it leads us to the question of, who will rule? Who, who will bring God's people out of all of this great judgment that is coming? Who will lead them out of exile? Will God forget His promise? Will, will God finally give them over once and for all? Well, in Isaiah chapter 11, God reminds them through the prophet Isaiah that he is a covenant-keeping God, that he will not simply give his people over, but there is a king coming, a king who will finally rule as God requires, and one who will, as we've said, bring hope and bring peace to his people. And that's what I want us to see here. So, four points. The first two are going to show us how God how this king fulfills God's requirements. And the last two are going to show us how he brings hope and peace to his people, okay? So let's look at it together. The first one, uh, to fulfill God's promise, we notice here that that this Messiah is the Davidic king. He is the Davidic king. Now, to some degree or another, uh, we have touched on this, but it's worth saying again that this really was requirement number one for anybody who was going to lead God's people. Now, now don't get me wrong, God could have very well raised up a king from, from anyone. Any nation, any person, any Israelite, could have, he could have done that. As you should recall in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he made a promise. He made a promise to David. You don't have to turn there, but it's a promise to make his kingdom an eternal kingdom, to set up his throne forevermore. And so the people recognize that that God is, as we've said, this covenant-keeping God, that, that he doesn't turn back on his promises. And so if you were going to rule over Israel, requirement number one was you had to be descended from David. Now let me just pause there just for a second. Because God's made a lot of promises throughout his word. One of those promises was to David. One of those promises was to Abraham and to Moses. Through Christ, he makes outrageous promises to all of us. What these people recognize is the same thing that we need to recognize. He keeps his promises. He he does not fail. Now, he may fulfill them in his own time and in his own way. But friends, we can trust him. And notice how he proves that point here. There in verse 1, he says... There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, this is easy enough for us to illustrate. If you walk right out that vestibule door and you look to the south driveway, the first what used to be maple tree that was right there is now a stump, right? And it's set there long enough at this point that what has happened to that stump has become more like a bush, right? Right? shoots have come out of the stump that's the illustration that, that God is using here with Isaiah the, the, the tree has been cut off destruction is coming but from all of that destruction there will come a shoot and notice that that, that shoot he is not only uh, a descendant of David but he actually is greater than David. Normally, normally, when they describe the kings of Israel, like if you were to turn back to 2 Kings chapter 18 and in verse 3, there the, the author is describing Hezekiah. And when he describes him, he says that, that he is a king after his father David, right? Here, the fact that that God goes all the way back to Jesse is meaningful. Because certainly Jesse was David's father, but but he's he's not comparing this king to David. David is not his father, but Jesse is his father. Significant, right? Because what, what we have here is not just another king like the kings that have come, but what we have is another David. We have one who comes from the father of David. We have one who comes from Jesse. He's going to be greater than even that great king, the greatest king of Israel's history, David. Not only is he greater because he is another David, but if you go to verse 10, notice that he's not only a shoot, but he's also the root. Now, I'm not a a, a horticologist or however you say that word. I'm not a a plant person so I'm probably going to put my foot in my mouth here but I'm pretty confident that like when a seed germinates you get roots before you get anything else, right? Everybody's shaking their heads. I think I'm on the right path here. Should have looked this up. Um, Roots, right? Roots come before the stump. Roots come before the branches. And so now... Not only is he from the the stump of Jesse, a shoot who comes from Jesse, but somehow he is even before Jesse, right? He is the root, the foundation, we might say, of Jesse. He is greater in every way. This is... Now somebody's scratching their heads right now going, hang on now, I'm not sure that you can get all of that out of that one little verse. But I would encourage you to remember what we read in Psalm 110 this morning. David recognized the truth of this. You remember that Psalm starts out, The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh says to Adonai. David recognizes that there's one coming who is greater than him. One who is going to sit on the throne, so he must be his descendant, but one who is his Lord. One who will reign until God puts every enemy under his feet as a footstool. Friends, that can't just be another son of Jesse or another son of David in a normal son of Adam way, right? It must be someone greater. It must be the Messiah, It is the true Davidic king. Secondly in this passage, notice that to fulfill God's requirements, uh, this Messiah will be anointed with the Spirit of God. Uh, Now again, this would most likely have have been a requirement for the the Davidic king. It would not have been something completely unexpected, even in the Old Testament. You know, people taught like uh, the Holy Spirit did not work in the Old Testament or that he wasn't around during that time. Uh, But we know that that's not true. Many figures, Moses and the prophets, and especially the kings, are anointed and are filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul had God's Spirit to some degree or another until he didn't have it, but he did have the Spirit. So this idea is not unique to Isaiah, but but this degree here in Isaiah chapter 11. What I want you to recognize is the, the fullness of the Spirit that this coming king will have. Because it's unusual. It's unusual even in the New Testament to have someone who has this type of fullness. And it's threefold. First, he will have the spirit of wisdom and of understanding. He will be able to lead. He will be able to get to the heart of the issue and thus judge correctly. Here we could think of Solomon, right, and all of his great wisdom. You remember the story of the two ladies, two supposed mothers who were fighting over the same child, right? And then Solomon says, "Hey, we're going to cut the child in half." And the people marveled at his wisdom. They were amazed at his decisions. Queens from other nations came to see the wisdom. It was so renowned. But even Solomon's wisdom proved to be limited in the end, right? He he was unable to rule as God intended him to rule. But this messianic king, he will have the spirit of wisdom and understanding in full measure. His judgments will be right. Secondly, he will have the spirit of counsel and of might. Uh, Unlike the the previous kings, he will have... um, good ideas, that's the only way I can think to describe it, and good advice and good commands. He will be a good counselor. Not only that, though, he will also have the power to carry those counsels out, and that's important. You know, I have a lot of good ideas. (laughs) Ben and Avis can testify to this fact. Renee, more than them, can testify to this fact. I have a lot of great ideas. The problem is I don't always have the, the power or the wherewithal or the stamina or the smarts to carry those things out, right? And this was, in many ways, the story of Israel's kings. Many of them had good intentions. They just not, did not have the ability to carry those counsels out to their needed end, right? But not this king. He will have the spirit of counsel and of might, And then thirdly, and most importantly, what really sets him apart is he will have the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. Again, what was the failure of the kings ultimately? It wasn't their counsels per se, though that was a, a symptom of their problem. It was the fact that they did not fear the Lord their God. They did not walk in his law They did not love him or care for him or do the things that he called them to do. But this king, he will have the spirit of knowledge. He will know truth. He will know how to apply it. And he will do so in accordance with God's word. He will give them truth. He will give them proper worship because his delight is in the fear of the Lord. Now this holiness, that, that's the way we can describe this third spirit fullness. He is holy, right? This holiness explains why he has the spirit in such a full measure. Again, others had the spirit. We have the spirit, right? But we are sinners. And so we don't enjoy the spirit to, its, to his fullest measure. But this king, he is holy. And so the fullness of God and of his spirit will dwell in him. He's king who fulfills God's requirements as a Davidic king. He fulfills God's requirements as he is filled with the spirit. And then thirdly in this passage, we see that in order to give his people hope, he is the the righteous king. He is the righteous king. Now, to some degree or another, we could talk about holiness here, and that wouldn't be wrong. But in verses 3 through 5, what I really want you to see is that he is righteous in his judgments. He is righteous in the things that he does for the nation and for the people. Now, again, when you put this in context, this would have been a delight for Israel to hear. This is what they were longing for. Whether they realized it or not, and most of them truly were, they were longing for someone to rule them with equity, to rule them with righteousness. Their kings had, had, had neglected the poor. We read that here, right? In, in chapter 9, as we were running through all of that that was coming, part of the reason for judgment is they had neglected the widows and the orphans. They had neglected to do for the, the poorest what God had required them to do, right? Right? They looked on outside appearances. They listened to the counsel of those who were in positions of power. But not this king. He won't won't listen to the counsels of other people. In verse 3 it says he doesn't decide with what his eyes see. He doesn't decide with what his ears hear. So how does he decide? Friends, he looks to the heart, right? He sees past the, the might of men. He sees past the facade the, the that we put up. He looks past the, the, the empty words of people who would accuse us. He looks all the way to the heart of the matter. Now that's great. That's a good thing. That, that should give us great hope it all shows you make a squirm a little bit, right? To know that God sees all the way there and that he is bringing in accordance with that judgment. And notice how that judgment will come. Not with swords, not with prisons, not with torture devices. No, his judgment will come by the rod of his mouth, by the breath of his lips. In other words, all that is required for him to bring judgment is for this king to speak, He will bring order. He will bring change. He will accomplish all his divine will with his righteous and faithful word. Righteousness that he wears as a belt, which symbolizes his readiness, his preparedness for action. Faithfulness that will bring truth to a broken and dark world. He is the righteous king. I can't emphasize that enough. We hear that and we may dismiss it, but friends, this is the heart of what we need. A righteous king. Fourthly, he brings hope to his people as he transforms, as he renews. He's the renewing, transforming king, and you see that in verses 6 through 10. And honestly, all of this could should take us a while to get through, but I'm going to try to move through it quickly because I know we're towards the end. But notice that there's, there's four things that he is in the process of renewing in this passage. First, he reconciles hostilities. Those who were once predators, the wolf and the leopard and the lion, they now will lay down with what was once their prey, the lamb and the young goat and the calf. So congenial will the situation be, so unhostile that a small child will lead the whole thing. In fact, the child here is pictured as having dominion. In some ways, this king is restoring the created order, right? He's taking us back to Eden, to that uh, that garden command, to rule. Secondly, he changes the, the nature of things as we have known it. Notice there that the bear and the lion, they will eat straw with the cow and the ox. They will be carnivorous no more in some way. He transforms them. He makes them different. Thirdly, and most significantly, notice that he removes the curse here. Right, We go back to the garden. He removes the curse in verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Think back to Genesis 3.15 that we saw last week. It was enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. But now, because of this king, no longer is, it, is that there. That curse is removed. The serpent will no longer be able to hurt God's people. And then lastly, notice that that Zion will be restored. Peace and holiness, knowledge of the Lord will reign. Emmanuel will be with his people. He will rest with them. And so we have, friends, here in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, this picture uh, of the messianic king. And the question still lingers, however, is, is a twofold question that still lingers. Who is this king and when will he come? Now, again, we can't simply just pull this chapter out of its context and say, well, all of this is just a future event. Because Isaiah is writing to a people with a purpose. And so somehow, in some way, there was a partial fulfillment of some of these things, right? And and whether it was Hezekiah who was coming, uh, whether it was another deliverer down the road, there was partial fulfillments of this promise along the way. But they were only partial, right? Because when we turn to the New Testament, who's ruling over Israel? Rome is really ruling over Israel, but there is no Davidic king. It seems like the whole thing is gone forevermore, right? But all of this, maybe more than any other passage that we're going to consider here in Isaiah, it does have that that redemptive history component to it. Because there's one true king, always, from the very beginning, from Judges, from the garden, all along the way. There was one true king. That's what Israel never could recognize. They had their king. God was their king. But in the New Testament, we find that this messianic king. And we find him in the person, in the work of Christ. Christ, who in Matthew chapter 1, is the Davidic king, right? Right? You remember that genealogy starts out. He is the son of David. He had to be. But he's also the son of Abraham. He is the root. He goes back farther. Later in John's gospel, Jesus will say, Before Abraham was, I am. He goes all the way back. So that John, in John chapter 1 and in verse 1 can say, In the beginning was the word word was with God and the word was God he is the eternal son who would sit on the throne of David then in Luke chapter 3 Jesus is the spirit-filled king you remember he's baptized and the dove descends upon him and the voice comes and says this is my son in whom I am well pleased he's the sinless savior who has the fullness of of the Spirit within him so that he might rule the way that God requires for his king to rule. Then in Revelation chapter 19 and in verse 15, it says, From his mouth, this is Jesus, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. from his mouth that his judgments come. Certainly when he returns he will come riding a horse he will come in judgment in full but still friends it will be the words of his mouth that transform it will be the words of his mouth that judge and then finally throughout all of scripture he is the renewing, restoring transforming king he transforms our personal lives he said to Nicodemus you have to be born again. And he says, How can we do that? He says, you have to be born again. He brings, according to Paul, the spirit of reconciliation. He removes the curse. He restores Zion and the kingdom of God. You remember in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, the, the creation is groaning. And yet Jesus, he, he renews it. In Revelation chapter 1 and in verse 5, he says, Behold, I'm coming. I'm coming to make all things new is Christ, swaddled and lying in a manger, dependent and vulnerable, like us in every way except without sin, who is and who was and who will always be the long-awaited king. He has come. He has taken the lowest place. And because he has, today, friends, we have hope. We have hope. I know we got to go, but I read an article this morning, and i got to share it with you just real quick. I was going through my phone and I saw this. It just popped up. And it was an article about church, about church attendance and how church attendance is falling off all over the world. People are no longer going to church. And they were interviewing this one pastor who had been a pastor for 30 years and he quit the church to go and start this like community uh, in a garden. And they meet on Sunday mornings And they talk about spiritual things and they garden. And as you read the the things that the people are saying, it all sounds nice. Some of the things I agree with them about. The church has failed in so many areas. We don't go out and and make any difference in our community. We don't go out and do the things that God calls us to do. And so they say, hey, we're just going to get out of the church. We're going to go and just do whatever out here. The problem was all they talked about was spirituality. They talked about just being, you know, it's just kind of religion, just sort of, right? There was no substance to it. There was no Jesus in it at all. What I want to say to them is, okay, that's great, but you know what you still need? You still need a king. You still need someone to rule you. You need someone to lead you in the way that you should go. we live in a world that is not very hopeful we live in a world where our personal lives our marriages are hard our jobs are hard our trials are difficult we live in a world where satan attacks us spiritually where he tries to accuse us over and over and over again we live in a world of death where death is a real thing we ask how can we stand We can't do it with just spirituality. We can't do it with just some good religious thoughts. We need someone to renew it all. We need someone who will give us hope in a fallen world. We need someone who, when Satan accuses us, can look past those words and can look to the heart of the matter. We need someone who can overcome death. And praise be to God, we have that King. That king is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He has defeated Satan, he has defeated death. And so friends, today, look to this king. Look to this Lord and find that he will truly give you all the hope that you could ever need. As we pray together, Father, we ask that you would hold up before us this great king, our great king. Lord, we do. We need to be led, whether we want to admit that or not. Uh, we need someone to overcome this world for us, to overcome our trials, our, our failures, and how thankful we are that we have one who can rule and who does rule and who will rule forevermore. Uh, he will sit on that throne of his father David for all of eternity. And Lord, we look forward to that day where that kingdom will come in all of its fullness. Uh, but until then, help us to, to live by faith, Help us to take the truth out of this King, and Lord, we pray that many, many would would come to be a part of this great kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.